Jodcast, stargazing in more ways than one, with Jen Gupta, Evan Keane, Tim O'Brien, Mark Perver, and Chris Timms. The Jodcast, January 2011 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Jen Gupta and joining me today are lots of people. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. I don't know if you want to introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Evan. Uh, I'm Mark. I've been on it before. Hi, and I'm Chris. Chris has been in the background and Evan is making his Jogcast debut. Yay! So this is a rather exciting episode for us. Most people will know, especially listeners in the UK, that at the beginning of January, the BBC did a programme called Stargazing Live, which was broadcast from Jodrell Bank. It was very exciting. There was three nights of live astronomy presented by Brian Cox and Dara O'Brien and even Tim O'Brien was, was on two of the shows. So that was really exciting and we actually went, got to go down to Jodrell and have a nosy round, which was really cool. And while we were there, we managed to talk to some of the people, which was awesome. We were really giddy that and it was, was amazing. very exciting and quite unexpected until about a day before it actually happened. Yeah, we, we were banned from Jodrell Bank, which is weird because we work there. Yeah, and because they obviously took Stargazing Live from Jodcast Live, presumably. Yeah, well, it quite, wasn't quite up to scratch, was it? <laughs> they hadn't done it before, to be fair to them. Um, so hopefully we've got some new listeners because of Stargazing Live. So if you're a new listener, hello. So if you don't quite understand what's going on, the Jodcast is a monthly, but as often as possible, twice monthly podcast that we put out from here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics with help from people all over the world. And we tell you what's in the night sky. We have the latest astronomy news. We answer your questions. We have interviews with current researchers. So hopefully you'll stick around and you won't get too confused what's going on. I mean, we're confused enough as it is, aren't we? Especially this time with this kind of celebrity edition. Yeah. So as I said, we got to go to BBC Stargazing Live and have a look around. And quite a lot of the topics on that show are things that were covered by the Jogcast. So if you want to know more about some of those topics um, we can tell you about a few shows to go and check out tim mentioned pulsars on the show and mark there's quite a few that's your your area of expertise i'm going to assume you know which shows to talk about yes it is it's evans too um there was an introduction sort of basic intro to pulsars in july 2010 extra which was me and then the most recent thing about pulsars was in the last episode january 2011 Uh, we've also done a few video episodes so if you want a bit more of a tour around jodrell bank there's a video episode we did in 2009 Whew, there's all the plugging out of the way. <laughs> so That doesn't mean you, you shouldn't also go and check out the archive. We have yes. lots of great shows out there as well. hundred. This makes it 102. Yay. Yay. So in the show this time, we talked to Professor Brian Cox about the link between particle physics and astrophysics. And we talked to Mark Thompson about the joys of stargazing. Tim O'Brien also is answering your questions, but before all of that, and I can't believe I'm saying this, here's comedian Daro Breen to tell us his views on stargazing. Okay, I'm here today at Jodrell Bank Observatory, and uh, I'm honoured to have with me a stand-up comedian. Yes. Who is also a TV presenter. Yes. A celebrity tweeter. Yeah. Uh, but above all else, he's Irish and he's an amateur astronomer. Uh, very welcome, uh, Daryl Green. It's a pleasure to be here, actually, yes. Yeah. Although my amateur astronomy is, is probably not as strong as, as, you know, I did physics, and I did, uh, yes. but I did theoretical physics. I did mathematics and mathematical physics. Uh, so actually, I haven't looked into an eyepiece uh, anywhere near as much as, you know, I've been letting on 
You know, I'm I'm about dusty rooms and chalkboards. Like, we, you know, we were in uh, Brian's dressing room working at the Taylor series expansion uh, for uh, to as a you know, to get derive E equals MC squared. That's my world, my lads. Uh, they, uh, it's actually this this stuff where you measure things. Actually, look at real things. I never did that nonsense. That's ludicrous. That's still pretty hardcore. I'm pretty impressed. It was it was it was hardcore in itself, like whatever. And I like you know I wasn't you know I wasn't the the uh, integration master or anything. I was all right at it, but the uh, but the uh, but actually yeah, I, I'm as much math as I am physics to be honest. Whatever. Although obviously, you know, we we all know this. You know, I can talk sheep farmer and cattle farmer distinctions with you guys because you know what I mean. To the public, that just means they all mean the same thing. So, well. My, that brings me on to my first question, actually. So you have a degree in physics, mathematical physics. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you tell me what originally interested you in doing science? Oh, listen, if, uh, being told about, uh, as a 14-year-old about, about relativity um, being t- and then reading, you know, Schrodinger's cat and those kind of popularizations that, that catch you uh, when you're your most impressionable. Uh, and, uh, and then I just, you know, that was a passion that led almost all the way through the degree where suddenly it became all about learning different forms of Fourier transform uh, and different forms of constitutive equations. And, it was, and like, there was very little factual physics in a maths physics okay. degree. And it kind of beat it out of me a little bit for a while. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but it was a, but it was, it was a, um, uh, it was just you know that childhood passion for uh, rubber sheet geometry. Okay, um, so at some stage then during your your uh, physics degree, um, you thought it would be more prudent to take up a more secure to career run away, to run away to the circus. Uh, yes, uh, yes. I uh, was in university. What? I was a, I was a kind of an inter uh, varsity debater. I did. Uh, I spoke in in I like I won an Irish national title in your old university um, in the uh, Siobhan McKenna. Isn't that the big big theatre in, in Galway? Yes. The uh, I won the Irish Times there uh, and uh, and got involved in that. And that is basically you're you're jumping into that is standing for the crowds, uh, telling jokes, and I, and then I ended up being the guy in UCD, which is Ireland's largest university the, uh, who would host the fresher orientation meetings right. uh, and that kind of stuff I was the go-to guy for public talking uh, in uh, in university and then just weirdly somebody asked me to try because I was one of your, I was your funny debater so somebody said would you would you try doing it as stand-up never really thinking that I would end up uh, doing it like I have there was like I'm for I, I'm still waiting to be found out to a certain extent and for somebody to call me back to the small provincial college where I'm teaching differentiation uh, to first year engineering students well you're getting away with it quite well I think yes I am I am I am continuing to get away with it but the uh, but still that call might come and I will have to you know and I, I look forward to going DYDX uh, to know the people who don't see why they have to learn it and me going oh, just, just so so you started off as a scientist, yeah. and you decided to become a stand-up comedian. But you obviously remained uh, still curious and interested in science. I did. I did. I would say there was a few years where I kind of a post degree where I went, "Oh God, this was that was so unbelievably tough. I needed a break from it." And what happened was it, it re-emerged. My innate nerdiness re-emerged uh, as I got a little bit older, um, and uh, I got back in touch with it. It also re-emerged because I started doing, found myself doing a lot of uh, kind of what we call bad science um, kind of uh, debunking type routines uh, and I found myself getting very involved like every show I've done for the last while it started with it started with Gillian McKeith it can all be tracked back to ah, Gillian McKeith yes. okay. and you are what you eat and a show called um Oh, what was it called? Uh, oh, honey, we're killing the kids. That okay, was it. Uh, and it had this ludicrous thing where they would they would show people a computer simulation, which they would say this is an accurate prediction. You're going to have you know it's an accurate prediction of what the child would look like at forty. Uh, by definition, you can't say it's an accurate prediction because it's a prediction. Yeah. Uh, and uh, 
uh, it would show a, a computer simulation, and, I'm, and, and, and then it would, and they would try to scare parents by going this. And your child would look junky, basically. Right. Like, your child would look like a fat heroin junkie if there's such a thing. And that just got, that just got me. Do you know what they got me? The child, the male child, would be shown bald, uh, and that just infuriated me because the parents. Neither of whom was bo- were bald right. would never question how how are we changing our child's innate DNA? How are we making are giving our child male pattern baldness by feeding him pizza? And that that kind of stuff just reawakened and angering me about this kind of stuff. And and it evolved at the point where I'm doing routines about neutrinos for Christ's sake uh, and and bad science involving subatomic particles and trying to get that past mainstream audiences. So it, an element it was my return to science was tempered not just by wonder but by anger. Okay, so you returned to science uh, in an effort to defend it. And Essentially, yeah. And, it, and it, there is a zeitgeisty move uh, towards, you know, these kind of, uh, the godless shows, as we call them, which are these kind of um, shows where comedians share a bill with uh, Dawkins and, uh, and Cox and Ben Goldick and, Brian and, and Simon Singh and these people. And we do our sceptical material and they do their actual science. Okay. Uh, and there is also, I think, a general movement of, uh, among a large chunk of the population, you'll see basically all of Twitter, uh, away from... Uh, the kind of just the frothy nonsense uh, that we've been f- fed for the last one into you know hey let's 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 hear what the smart people have to say and I am one of those sitting on the side I listen, happily listen to the smart people here here <laughs> yes yeah yeah that's no, great people actually have actually studied something it's it's, it's kind of refreshing uh, to people who know something about something yes so now we're here at Jodrell Bank Observatory and yes you're, and you're here for BBC Starga- Stargazing Live yes um and. I'm just wondering how active of an amateur astronomer you have been and how much you will be after having done this. Uh, well, I will be more so. I have been... I have a telescope at home. I have one of those kind of fantastic ones. You press a button and it brings you on a tour. Um, the where we're living at the moment isn't exact. We moved house and it got packed up in a box because it's not ideal. I kind of, I'm kind of... I'm either north or south face so I don't get a particularly clear as in like it, things arrive over the house eventually uh, and so it's not ideal uh, where I am at the moment like, so I've got to start packing stuff in the boot of the car like whatever but, uh, but I can see myself doing a lot more simply from the experience of, of having this uh, it, the, uh, it has been um, just it's been fantastically interesting yes. I'm, I'm quite I'm quite a go out and have a look at the Perseid meteor shower type thing I'm, I'm yeah. very pro of that, that that's a, a bit of a personal favourite of mine the, yeah so well, I think you and uh, Brian Cox are doing a great job in that, in that uh, I think you'll have encouraged people who maybe don't have a telescope that they can well, go out and do naked eye astronomy. Well, apparently, well, naked eye is obviously, if, if we point out the things that are available in naked eye, that's great. Uh, we also found that the uh, telescopes were trending on Amazon after the first show, like immediately after the first show. Excellent. People turned to their computers and went, oh, how much is a telescope? Uh, and uh, so they suddenly became this thing on Amazon. So... Um, uh, so hopefully, and the, the viewing figures have been astonishingly good for this. I mean, we would have been happy with about two million. It would have been okay in that slot, and it would have been it would be no mean. It would be a good solid number because you'd presume well that's a pretty good three point six for the first show and three point two for the second is phenomenally good. So uh, so he's gone great. Yeah, that is excellent. And now we've heard a, there's a rumor going around. For yes, that you're hosting Stargazing Live as a result of losing a bet. Ah, uh, that was just, Can I said that. No, I, I, I'm hosting Stargazing that, that Live. That was incorrect. Uh, that's incorrect. I am, however, hosting Stargazing Live uh, due to being uh, sold a pup, as we say. Uh, it is, uh, I was, um, 
I was initially told we want to do a show where we would bring you to Africa and you sit uh, in, you know, on top of a mountain outside like Cape Town uh, and you look at the stars. And I went, yeah, I'll do that. It's January. I love to have a week in Africa in January. Brilliant. And then I received an email from the BBC going, great news. The shoot is now in Macclesfield. Uh, and uh, and their, their chirpy, upbeat tone. And I was, on, I was on board at that stage. It was too late for me to turn around and go, you... How dare, you know, it was it was false advertising basically. I got lured into do one show, and I, and I got nothing against Macclesfield. Uh, my um, in laws live in Macclesfield, and my wife Rami said, "Jesus, every night you say, here we are in Macclesfield, <laughs> like it's the worst place in the world to be." Hey, Macclesfield is fine, it's grand. In fact, I'm technically not even in strictly in Macclesfield, but you know, it's not Africa. I was expecting to finish this tonight, right, and then tomorrow to drive down to the coast. And maybe to uh, go to the Stellenbosch region and, and have some wine, or maybe go to go on a safari. That's what I was planning to do. I wasn't planning to go to a essentially the Linton Travel Tavern Hotel that we're staying in at the moment uh, and have a few pints and then get the train back home. So I, I you know, I was, you know, nothing against, you know, nothing against what we're doing here. And I love what you're doing. And wow, it's great to be in general bag. But Christ, like every night you should see behind my eyes a small amount of regret that I don't get to hit the beach at any stage during this shoot. Sorry. And, you know, it's like they promised me a beach. <laughs> so... <laughs> Pull it together, bad interview technique. Yeah. Now, pull it together. You're only reading the thing off the yeah. sheet, for Christ's sake. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, yeah. Um, this is my first interview, Daryl. It is. It's the first, first time I've ever interviewed anyone guessed. in my entire life. Yeah. Um, it is a, just a, a form of conversation. So you can't stop. You can't stop in a conversation. Okay. Yeah. Well, next thing I was going to ask you is, well, how... You, you were sold, um, we'll say, a different vision of this event. Yes, yes. But now yes. you're here at the wonderful Jodrell Bank. At Glorious Jodrell Bank, The home yes. of astronomy oh, in the is, UK. I, I, I turn to stare at the window, and this is probably the only one that doesn't look uh, at the scope. Uh, it's over there. Yeah, it is. And, it, and look, it is, it, it, listen, it's fantastic. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's also that proper people do working and people do science here. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's bits like, you know, just bits of tat lying around and old scientific papers stacked in corners like and it's it, it's bringing back memories of this is know. how it's done yes it is yeah and like, be, of, of lecturers things and you go to, to a lecturer's room to ask them questions about something and they would have piles piles it was a guy called Thomas Laffey who was a lecturer of mathematics and he had, his room was just this forest and he he looked he, even though he, he was he looked like one of those hoarding men whose corpses they find uh, when you know nobody's heard from them for two weeks and they kick down the door like whatever because uh, at, at some stage proceedings of the mathematical society or whatever would have collapsed on him and he would have been trapped and not be able to he would have written help in chalk uh, on the blackboard that, in his room like whatever before collapsing it was, but it is a bit like that there's like old circuit board and transport there's also a bell why is there a bell Ah, the bell here is traditionally to summon people to uh, lectures or colloquia. Or if, there was, oh, if there was a guest really? speaker, everyone would be so engrossed in their research that they'd need some kind of alarming noise to get them to go to... But that's hilarious, because apparently, because Cox, Cox let on that it was a safety thing, that they were about to move the telescope, and here's the bell. Hmm. Like, yeah, you, and I, I remember thinking, that doesn't, that, that can't be, that can't hold true, because the bell is like, ding, ding, it's like, who would go, oh, wow, ding, ding, because it's not even near the telescope. No, that's oh, that's there a, is a, such a bluffer. There is actually a sound that rings from the, before the telescope. Yeah, because I'm sure there's like you a, have, you might have, yeah, there's a horn of some description. Yeah, more than ding ding, like everybody, yeah. dinner's ready. Uh, ding ding. Okay, grand. So I'm gonna ring. I want to ring the bell when we finish the last show. 
That's oh, you're yeah. going to ring it tonight? Yes, I want to, to ring it tonight. To close the show. On live TV? No, I won't bother oh, with live TV. It's not a thing. But, okay. I, but I will do it myself. Because I walked past it and I felt I shouldn't ring it because I thought it might signify. But will everyone run out and expect some, me to deliver a symposium on? I don't think so. I think it can be used in a celebratory way as well. Yes. We hereby uh, confer and the power to ring the bell tonight. Thank you very much. You're very kind. Um, so, you're here in beautiful Judgeville Bank. Yep. And you're working with... Um, some great co-presenters. I was wondering how you were getting on working with them. Professor Brian Cox. Well, Cox is, Cox is fantastic. Cox, you just have to occasionally rein him in because he will go proto-nerd uh, yes. on stuff. He will go, yeah, and, and uh, because I've inter- interviewed a conversation with Brian about relativity that involve him talking very fluently and me scratching furiously through 20 years of accumulated dust to find the, to keep up with them. Like, is there a null geodesic? And I'm going, Jesus, 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 a null geodesic with G.I.J. Uh, always the shape of my old DJs. Uh, and so it is, you know, and I'm nodding furiously and then go, to think of a smart question, think of a smart thing to say. So, uh, but there is, you know, I, I think I've, I fit quite naturally into the, I know a little bit about this, uh, so I can ask questions, but I am on the side of the, of the viewers. Right? Okay. I'm, the side of the t- I'm on the side of the 10-year-old boy who is, reads a bit about this. But needs to right. know a little bit more. So, so, uh, but you know, you, but like, we're also philosophically we're in, we're uh, in tune in terms of we don't want it to be dumbed down. Yes, and I think a large part of it, it hasn't been dumbed down. I, don't I think, think that's correct, and I think you're more than well representing the uh, well-informed, interested amateur. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which that I think would be good Yeah. Um, so you're also working with Jonathan Ross. Ross will be in uh, later on today. Uh, we are confining him because otherwise he will run rampage through the show because that, that, that is his persona. The um, the you may if you uh, make a joke about his current appearance, he uh, uh, he may not still have the weird cat weasel kind of appearance that he had in, in the last while. The uh, yes, Ross Ross should be in. Uh, I have you know I haven't seen the pieces. You don't get to see the stuff. Okay, well when it goes up because we when we say and here is Margaret, we then are running to the next location. So we didn't see, for example the meteor because okay. the, we, we missed the start of all these things we go over to you Mark and then we immediately we're off okay. and so, so we, we missed it well if you're the well informed amateur yeah. perhaps Jonathan is the less informed, informed amateur, amateur yeah. Yeah. well listen if you imagine you one of those goal. evolutionary diagrams uh, where the, it becomes uh, you know ape then hominid then australopithecus then whatever the, uh, then basically Cox is evolved man I am just slightly beyond evolved man and uh, Jonathan is just crawling out of the ocean Okay, well, um, I can't think of any more questions right now. <laughs> That's okay, because often I, I, the key to a good interview is, is brevity, and uh, you get all you can. I feel drained. I feel there's nothing more I can give, uh, and that means it's been a successful interview, because okay. I couldn't say another word at this stage. Okay. I'm likely to perform badly in the show tonight. I am so spent by this, by this process. Okay, well, thank you for sacrificing your time, Dara. Quite all right. It's been, yeah, very, it's been great having you. It's been a pleasure, Let's go. Thanks for that, Evan. And Evan, it was actually mostly down to you that we got to do these interviews, wasn't it? Yes, myself and Dara are good friends. (laughs) (laughs) Since um, we go way back. In fact, I have many celebrity friends. Really? Or you just asked him on Twitter? I may have asked him on Twitter. Um, Dara, as you know, is an avid tweeter. And um, (laughs) he seems to be more likely to respond if you... uh, tweet at him in his native language which is also my native language so next up we have an interview with mark thompson and i really don't know how to describe him he's an amateur astronomer who gets paid to do it so i guess he's a professional amateur astronomer but that just sounds stupid professional stargazer i would have said he gets paid to stare at the sky and tell people about it tv astronomer tv astronomer Mm. Multimedia anyway. astronomy. 
Anyway, he was the guy in the field for any of you who watched um, Stargazing Live and Mark went to talk to Mark. I'm here with Mark Thompson, the resident astronomer for BBC's The One Show and the Night Sky Guide on Stargazing Live. Thank you very much for being on the Jogcast. No problem at all. It's good to uh, be involved in this. The first thing I thought I might ask you is, um, I know that you're a qualified pilot. Yes. How on earth did you end up becoming a TV astronomer? Well, I've been an amateur astronomer for 25 years or more, so I've had a passion for the night sky for many, many years. I took up flying as a hobby probably around 10 years ago, and so I've qualified as a, as a pilot since I've become an astronomer, but astronomy has always been the passion, um, and the, the role as the TV astronomer has just, has just morphed over the years. The, the pilot thing has just been secondary to all of that. Have you ever been able to do astronomy from a plane? Funnily, yes, I was once, um, this is, if the CIA are listening, I don't want them to know about this, <laughs> but I was once, um, a, on an instrument flying lesson, so I had an instructor on board as well, so that, you know, they had another pilot who knew what they were doing, which is good, um, and I should have, should have been at the time paying attention to all the instruments and the aircraft, which, you know, instrument flying is chiefly about looking at instruments. Um, and I happened to catch out of the corner of my eye, Venus, we're above the clouds, and this was just at twilight, just above the clouds, the clouds were looking sort of lovely velvety kind of purpley colour. It looked, it looked stunning. And then Venus was just hovering in the sky, just with, with a crescent moon nearby as well. And I have to say, my attention was just grasped for a few moments while, you know, while I was looking at that, instead of paying attention to the instruments. So yes, I have... Legally, no, never, of course not. Focus on the job. But yes, I have had my attention grabbed on a few occasions, but not, not in a dangerous way, of course. <laughs> You're kind of a compulsive stargazer yes. then. You can't, can't, can't let away. it go. Can't let it go. What is it about actually looking up at the stars that, or at whatever's out there in space that's really, that really appeals to you? I think the thing that appeals to me is the, the enormity of it all. And to a degree, the fact that the more we learn, the more we realize we know nothing. Um, we don't know nothing. We know we do know an awful lot about stuff, but you know, the more we actually pick up about the universe, we find actually there's still shed loads more we still need to learn. So it's, it's a bit about the unknown, and it's also about the physics behind the stuff that we're looking at. I mean, we can look at the Andromeda Galaxy, which you can see in the sky at this time of year, and it's faint, it's fuzzy, it doesn't look all that impressive, but it's a galaxy with about a trillion stars in it, um, and the light has taken about two and a half million years to get here, so you're looking back in time. It's all that kind of stuff, so it's knowing actually what you're looking at rather than just purely looking at the object itself. Yeah, so when you you can look at something from your back garden that's just completely mind-boggling. Absolutely. I mean, there are objects you can see through an amateur telescope where the light left before the Earth was even here. <laughs> so, you know, light has taken over 5 billion years to get here. So, you know, anyone can go outside in the garden tonight with a basic telescope, look at certain galaxies, and the light left that galaxy before the Earth had even formed. And that is just wacky. So you're looking back in time when you're doing astronomy, even amateur astronomy. The sun is, you know, the sun's about eight and a half minutes away. Mm. So if the sun were to just disappear, we wouldn't know about it visually for about eight and a half minutes. And so, you know, no, all that yeah. kind of stuff is just really bizarre. Because we, we're so used to, you know, distance you to, for me, you know, it takes nanoseconds, probably less than that, for the light to get to me. But in the universe, it takes time for light to get places. Yeah. Weird. You get the idea of, of how space and time are bound mm. up together. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you do. Totally, totally. So coming back to popular astronomy. Yes. Do you think in terms of popularizing astronomy now that new user-driven services kind of blogging and podcasting and social networking sites that are more important in spreading popular astronomy than the traditional media like TV? 
I would say as important, certainly. I, mean, I think when you know you've got, I don't know if I can advertise on every, you know, you've, you've got Twitter. You know, that, that that's a fantastic system. Um, there's projects out there. There's there's a project called Meteor Watch. I don't know if you've seen it, where people can tweet when they see a meteor and that, and then gets yeah. pumped through to a map and get alerts for space station fly past. There's all sorts of stuff that you can get. So I think. TV is good for sort of general information and for getting people out there, perhaps really, you know, wowing them with the graphics and the multimedia side of it. But, you know, I think the whole technology stuff, when I mean, you can get apps on iPhones and on HTC phones, all that kind of stuff, and they show you what you can see in the sky. I mean, I was using it last night because it was cloudy. I just wanted to kind of get my head around where Jupiter would be broadly so I couldn't see a damn thing out there. Yeah. And I fired up an application on the phone and just said, oh, yeah, you know, it's actually going to be right over there. So I knew exactly right. where it would be so I don't have to waste time, you know, tarting around trying to think, oh, no, is it over there? Is it over there? So all those applications and the technology is brilliant. And I think that's where it's good to help people learn the sky. Yeah. And did you come into your role that you've got now through those kind of new services? Not really. I mean, it's kind of come about since then. I, I, I've done, I did a lot of work with local media. Um, that's back in Norfolk where I live. So I did a lot, a lot of work with, with um, the local newspaper, local TV. I've only been involved in probably more national astronomy stuff for probably about two and a half years now. Um, so I'm quite new to it, new into it. But even in that time, that technology has changed dramatically. And it is now so much easier for people to get involved in doing astronomy. And that's the beautiful thing about it all now. When you're not doing TV sort of work, what kind of astronomical things do you like to do? Oh, crikey, all sorts of things. I've kind of got a passion for imaging, so taking photographs of the sky. So one of the things I do when I'm not doing astronomy, if you like, is probably tampering around with pictures, making them look pretty. Yeah. And I, I, I use the word tampering a bit reservedly because, there's, you know, some people think, well, you know, if you're, if you're enhancing pictures, then you're changing them from what they really are. But you're not. You're actually just enhancing them. And a good analogy, yeah. I think, is the old red eye reduction. Mm. You've all seen photographs of people that have been taken, flash has gone off, and you've got the little red pupils in people. And people have no problem with just, you know, getting that airbrushed out or, or using the flash reduction yeah. on or whatever. So there's there's no difference. What, what you're doing is you're just making the picture look appealing and look more... Um, you know, more scientifically accurate. Well, it's just like having better eyes, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes? it is. It is, and, and you know, in a sense, a telescope is doing that for you as well because a telescope is is acting like a funnel for your eyes. So if people are going to be so precious about it, you shouldn't even use a telescope. You know, <laughs> put them all away, forget about them. You're tampering with what you can see. So you know, a, a telescope is, is is affecting and changing what you can see in the eye, and it, and it makes your eye as big as the telescope. I mean, the, the pupil is about. I don't know, two and a half, three millimetres across, whatever it is when it's dilated. Um, and if you use a telescope that's maybe four, five, ten, twelve inches across, you've got an eye that big. So, you know, all of a sudden you're going to see so much more information. It was amazing on Stargazing Live, actually, to see the guide to how you could easily take astrophotographs. Yes. Some of those methods were so non-specialist, Yeah, but they, they produced such good results. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 a lot of people know that, well, certainly in the astronomy world, know you can DSLR camera plug onto the back of the telescope or stick on a tripod, get constellation shots. But the bit that, for me, some of the images I saw, you know, the, the, the guys who just got a, a bog-standard compact camera, stuck it to the eyepiece of a telescope and pushed the button, you know, how much more basic can you get? Mm. And there was a stunning image of Saturn near the limb of the moon. And that was an incredible picture. Yeah, now when you think, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago, nobody could have done that. And for someone who just got a probably 20 quid camera out of, you know, out of the chemist down the road and just got that snap just as simply as that, it was incredible. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are some really easy techniques people can use. You can go to the, the, the more complex methods, you know, webcam imaging. It's not, 
it's not the most, that's not that complex. It's not webcams that complex. are quite yeah. Webcams are easy yeah. enough to use, and you know, as a clip showed, you, there's really simple software out there that will help you do it. Um, so as long as you've got a webcam and a telescope, you can get pictures. The, probably the hardest thing to do is to get the the object in the centre of the telescope. So you've got it in the middle of the webcam field because chips in the webcam. I've never seen them. They're about I don't know a centimetre square. Mm. So trying to get the image right in the middle so that when you stick the webcam in. You've got it because believe you and me, when you're trying, if you're looking at a webcam image or live feed from a webcam, and all you can see is black sky, and no guidance to know whether you're just above it or just below it, no, yeah. you can waste hours trying to get the thing in the centre of the field of view. But persistence pays off. But persistence pays off, and you know you you, you can you can buy eyepieces that have got crosshairs on them, so you know you've got things right in the middle. But yeah, absolutely, persistence does pay off, and just with webcams, I mean, I've seen some stunning images of Jupiter and Saturn almost competing with spacecraft images. Well, you know, there, there's some amazing images out there. And it's all done with, with, with amateur equipment, and that's just incredible. So as the real stargazer among the presenting team on The only life, stargazer among the team. you say the real astronomer? Yeah, say that. <laughs> the others are just theoretical physicists, and physicists aren't they? They don't count, they're not real. I was going to ask you if you taught them a thing or two you about know, how to They look only at ever came outside for about five minutes on both shows so far. That's shocking. It was cold at the first time. Yeah, yeah tell me it's cold. I've been out there for hours. <laughs> I've even got down there, I'm going on a rant, I apologise. I've okay? even got down there heated boots. Oh. They're a thing of the future. <laughs> they they have three heat settings, low, medium and high, and they will keep my feet toasty warm for eight hours. How do you keep your fingers warm when you're playing with a telescope? Yeah, they get cold. They're called, it's called gloves. It's right. quite a new thing. You'll okay. get well. <laughs> you, can get, you can get heated gloves. You can get heated, but I haven't gone to that extent. I'm hard. Yeah, I can <laughs> okay. take the cold. It doesn't affect me. Would you say Dara Breen and Brian Cox are not, not very hard and not tough? No, they're softies, both of them. And I hope you listen to it, both of you. <laughs> It's quite, it's quite funny because on the, on the show a number of times they've uh, they've been speaking to Liz over in Hawaii and saying how cold it is over here in Macclesfield. They <laughs> think it's cold sitting in a nice warm studio. Do they? Yeah, get them outside, then we'll see. <laughs> but it's good fun. It's good fun. It is. Well, I think sometimes when when it's cold, you get really good seeing. Don't you? you do you really see this guy. The best, the best. Unfortunately, last night was colder than Monday night because there was a bit of wind, and of course you get the good old wind chill factor was affecting it. So last night it was cold and it was cloudy, and with the exception of the meteor, which disappeared behind my head, which I never saw. Until that was a morning. brilliant moment. I, I must have been the only person in the entire country who didn't see that meteor, <laughs> and I was gutted. But it, it was it was superb for the show, you know. If you're going to have a cloudy night, then you want something just to spice it up a little bit, then yeah, put a meteor behind the guy's head who just said it's cloudy and you can't see anything. <laughs> That'll work all right. <laughs> But Twitter went mad after that as well. We had loads of them coming through, which is great. And again, you know, it just shows how the interaction between TV and all these new media is is fantastic. I mean, the, the Twitter hashtag that we've got has been going mental. It, it trended worldwide on the first night and was fourth in the world. And, you know, wow. that that is incredible for, for a UK-based show as well. So and you, you can know, really see what people are saying to you as well. About yeah, no, absolutely you can. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I've not gone through the... Entire list, <laughs> no. of, uh, and the, you know we had email questions coming. We had about I think seven thousand questions came in via email on the first night. Wow! And so you know, trying to fit, you know, just to get get a sample of those, mm. you know, it's it's a fantastic response. It's just great how the people who are watching the show can interact with the show, and you know that that is fantastic. Yeah. What I was going to ask you, perhaps, the last thing is. Um Sometimes people refer to astronomers as astrologers. That yes, they do. I was wondering if anyone's ever asked you to tell their fortune. Mm, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, not, <laughs> not that in so many words, but people will quite often say, oh, you're an astrologer, are you? And then they'll even say, oh, you're an astronomer, are you? I'm a Leo. <laughs> like, no, 
Astrologer. So yes, I get loads of people will will say, "Oh, you do? Oh, yeah, I'm into that. Yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a Leo. Yeah, what are you?" No, 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 no. <laughs> so yes, I get loads of that. Loads and loads and loads of that. Okay. But they only do it once. Do. Right. They only do it once. You only get then, one chance. Then they learn. <laughs> then they learn never to do you it again. You teach them of all the constellations. I just beat them up and then right. they're fine about it after that. <laughs> well, I suppose going back into sort of ancient times, some of the first observers were astrologers. Mm. I mean, I don't, yeah, absolutely. I don't know exactly what it was that motivated people to try and start making those kind of predictions. Is it, is it just that you see something that's so amazing you think this must mean something? I think if you, if you sort of go back to... I don't know, five, six, seven thousand years when they had no concept of anything going on. If you, you know, we had a partial eclipse of the sun the other morning, although we only just caught the thing here, we were up at six o'clock filming for and it's cloudy and wet and horrible. But if you, you know, if you imagine the sun's up there, total solar eclipse, all of a sudden, the sun disappears. Terrifying. I mean, it's going to scare the living daylights out of you. So immediately, you're going to try and put some kind of context around it. Because back then, they thought believed in gods and all that sort of thing. So you can understand absolutely why people would have attributed that to you know, some kind of higher being trying to communicate or whatever. And, of course, they'd sacrifice people to the sun that's disappeared, and then the sun comes back again. Mm. So it works. We must be right. We'll do it again next time. So you can see how all that kind of builds up. And you're right, I mean, astrology was the first subject that was around. Astronomy didn't come for a lot of years. And it was only until we started to understand and ask the questions around what was really going on in the universe that astronomy evolved as a science and the two finally sort of diverged. It's just a shame that a lot of people still follow astrology. Yeah, well, it must it must say something to people's psyche that they, they want to, to believe. People like to have something to believe on. If you if someone says to you, hey, you're going to have a cracking day today, you believe them. If someone says, yeah, actually, you're going to have a rubbish day, just stay at home. You <laughs> think, yeah, what do you know? Just, just shut up. So people like to hear good things. And you, you never read, a, not they do read horoscopes for the record, but <laughs> you never read a horoscope that says, your day is going to go from bad to worst. You know, you're going to... You're going to lose your job. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. Just give up now. You know? Do you know? You never see bad stuff in them, so you kind of have to question. You know, is it that's rubbish? But what, I'm going on now. But what, what you can see up there is, is is interesting enough in itself. It is, isn't it really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... absolutely. And in, interestingly, that the, there's more people now that believe in astrology in some way than have ever done before, and that worries me because we're more scientifically aware than we've ever been, mm. and yet there's more people that kind of have a the belief in astrology, and that's shocking. But you're right, in the sky there's so much really interesting stuff that we can prove, so you'd kind of hope people would start to think about that, rather than whether it's going to you know, win the pools of the lottery next week. <laughs> <laughs> right, well maybe as a very last question I should ask you, what's your most favourite thing to look at in the night sky? Except meteors that are behind me. Uh, yeah, probably, meteors that are in front of you. Probably, probably Saturn. <laughs> now, I mean, I'm not a planetary person, I'm, I've got more of a passion for this stuff in the outer edges of the universe, you know, the faintest stuff, that you, you know, it's not, mm-hmm. not as, as, as immediately impacting visually, but it is Saturn, you know, Saturn is the first thing I ever saw through a telescope and it stuck with me ever since, and that's 20 odd years ago now. Um, and so I think you can never fail and never tire to look at planets because they're big, they're bright, they're easy to find, and they just look incredible. They look like they should look, but, you know, yeah. all the other stuff like the galaxies and the star clusters, you, you kind of have to rely on imaging techniques to be mm-hmm. able to show them for what they are. Visually, they don't look like an awful lot. So it's a, you know, it's a lot of messing around. But a planet, you point a telescope at it, boom, there it is. Seeing it for yourself is something yeah. else. It is. You, you, you know, you, you can see images from spacecraft and from Hubble Space Telescope, all that kind of stuff. But to see it yourself live, you know, to a quote, stargazing live, mm. to see it for real is is the most incredible thing you'll ever have. Brilliant. Well, cool. we can wrap it up there. Thank you That's very fine. much. For My being pleasure. On the Thanks for that, Mark. And if you want to know what you can see in the night sky each month, don't forget to check out our monthly night sky section in the main show in February. 
Now for a final interview, Jen had the pleasure to interview Professor Brian Cox from the University of Manchester. It's a great pleasure to be joined today by Professor Brian Cox from the University of Manchester. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us today. What, for, for, to turn up at my university? Taking busy time out of schedule to turn up at my home institute. Yeah. So a lot of our listeners will know you as the rock star physicist, the <laughs> presenter of Wonders of the Solar System, the keyboard player from D-Ream. But we also have listeners in other countries who might not know who you are. So let's wipe the slate clean. How would you describe yourself to our listeners? Well, my proper job is a professor at the University of Manchester, a particle physicist. So I work at, when I'm not messing around doing television shows, <laughs> at CERN in Geneva on the Large Hadron Collider. And um, actually other bits of particle physics started, actually, do, um, designing supernova neutrino observatories. We'll talk about that later. Most of our listeners might not know much about particle physics. Could you give us a two-minute summary of particle physics? Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, particle physics at the most basic level is the study of the building blocks of nature, so that the smallest building blocks of nature that we can find. But I think more importantly, the study of three of the four forces of nature. So there are four forces. There's gravity, which is perhaps the most familiar, but by far the weakest. And it's so weak that only astronomers care about it. So particle <laughs> physicists dismiss it out of hand, which is not exactly true, actually. Maybe we'll get to that later because there's a possibility we could have something to say about gravity at the Large Hadron Collider, but it's a real outside chance. But the other three forces, uh, forces that operate in the subatomic world, um, electromagnetism is probably, again, a very familiar force. And then there are two forces that operate in the nucleus, the strong and weak nuclear forces. So particle physics is really more than the search for other particles i think really the study of three of the four forces of nature and we always have in astronomy we always have acronyms so you work at the lhc the large hadron collider so large and collider are pretty obvious what are hadrons well hadrons so you could say just protons right so a proton is a hadron but so the lhc in its normal running mode collides protons together and actually it can collide up to 600 million together every second at 99.999999% of the speed of light. So it's an impressive machine. <laughs> uh, but it can also collide other things together that are made of protons and neutrons. So at the moment, actually, it's just been colliding lead nuclei together. So the nuclei of lead. So that's why Hadron is kind of a generic name for those particles. And it's not called the Large Proton Collider because we can actually put pretty much anything in it that's got an electric charge. It wouldn't do very well with neutrons because they'd go in a straight line. And it's circular, so it wouldn't last long <laughs> because there'd be no way of steering them around corners. <laughs> I've just got this image now. Yeah, oh, don't! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you put the neutrons in, they just gone on. Yeah. yeah, you can't accelerate them anyway. Neutrons are difficult things because they've got no charge, so you can't really do much with them. You mentioned uh, neutrinos from supernovae mm. as well, and they're very difficult particles to detect. Can you tell us what a neutrino is and how that links into supernovae? Yeah, so so there are twelve fundamental building blocks of matter that we know of and you only three of them actually to make up you and me and the earth and stars and galaxies um we can get to that later as well but um, <laughs> at, at the stuff you can see in the universe you only need three particles you need up and down quarks which make up the protons and neutrons which make up the nuclei of atoms and you need electrons to go around the atoms and then in that family the family of things you need to build a universe there's one more thing called the neutrino and it's very kind of esoteric in a way because they interact very weakly with, with normal matter. But they're, they're absolutely key to understanding how stars work. I mean, what, what the sun does is it makes hydrogen out of, uh, helium out of hydrogen. So it sticks protons together to make helium. 
which is two protons and two neutrons. In that process, you've got to convert protons into neutrons. So that the force that does that is the weak force, and every time you do that, you produce a neutrino. So the kind of takeaway figure, and you know, there's slightly different numbers for this, but the general takeaway figure is that the sun it burns 600 million tons of hydrogen every second into helium. It's a huge amount. That's a lot of neutrinos. And at the Earth, there are something like 50 or 60 billion per centimetre squared per second passing through the Earth as a result of the nuclear reactions in the sun. That's a really large number to get your head around. Yeah, but but they they virtually bump into nothing. They go straight through the Earth and impede most of them. And that's because the weak nuclear force is very short range. Especially weak's kind of a the wrong word to use really it's very it's it's quite strong if you're very close to something but how close are we talking well no <laughs> subatomic dimensions so so it, basically a neutrino has to go very close to a nucleus or an electron to, to have any chance of interacting with it and the reason for that is that the the particles that carry the weak force so this might be a strange concept, but the way that a particle physicist would say that electromagnetism works, uh, so two charged particles, if you bring them together, they, they repel if they've got the same charge. A particle physicist would say that a photon, which is the carrier of the electromagnetic force, jumps between them. So, so particles called photons, which are also particles of light, carry the electromagnetic force. In the same way, there's particles called W and Z bosons, which are very similar to photons, actually, which carry the weak force. And they're very heavy. They're very massive. They're, they're as massive as nuclei of gold, right, which is strange. Um, and that makes the weak force very weak. And actually, one of the main things we're doing at the LHC is looking for the reason for that mass. So you might have heard of this thing called the Higgs particle, which everybody calls various names and everybody's been searching for for years. But the reason that we really need to understand that is to understand why, how these things that carry the weak force got heavy, got massive. Um, so that's one of the big things we do in the LAC. That's a big answer, isn't it? That was a big so answer. Go, that's particle physics. Yeah. <laughs> right. I've got like, so many questions to, <laughs> to break off from that. And first of all, if neutrinos don't interact with things, how do you detect them? Well, they do. They interact via the weak force. Right. So they, they have a very low probability of interacting with matter. I suppose you could say because matter's not very dense. So if you fired neutrinos into something like a neutron star, they'd have a very high probability of bumping into <laughs> something because it's really dense. But um, so, so it's really because of the diffuse nature of matter, I suppose, and the, and the short-range nature of the weak force that they just pass through. So, so another way of saying it is that they don't have any electric charge. If, if things that have electric charge, like electrons and quarks and protons, um, they, they, they just bump into things very easily. And things that have the strong charge, actually, so interact by the strong nuclear force, again, so that's neutrons, they'll bump into things very easily. But neutrinos are unique in the particle zoo, if you want to call it that, because they only interact by the weak force. So it's not very probable they'll bump into anything. So we need very large detectors to get them. Um, yeah, I mean, one, so, so there's a low probability. So one way of doing it is to have a big tank of water under a mountain in Japan, which is what we do. It's called <laughs> Kamiokande. It doesn't have to be Japan, but they just had the right mountain <laughs> and the will to build the thing. And that's just a huge tank of water, essentially. So you get, you know, 10 or 20, I'm not sure what the exact number is, but maybe 10 or 20 neutrinos from the sun, from these billions and billions per centimetre squared per second, you get 10 or 20 every day, maybe a few more, bumping into something in the water, and you can detect that. So that's how we know. So we know that they're there, we can detect them, but it's just um, difficult. 
I've seen a really cool picture from that detector, I think. It's of the sun, but taken through the Earth in neutrinos. And yeah. that's just crazy to think about. That you can yeah, take a photo yeah. of the sun through the Earth. Yeah. Can we talk a bit more about what you actually work on? So w- the, I know there's four experiments at CERN, so which one do you work on? Yeah, I work on ATLAS. Um, but actually, I, I also worked on a, a joint project. This is the thing that I did for many years, actually, with ATLAS and CMS, which is the other big detector at CERN, to put little detectors... Um, very close to the beams. So to, just to picture this experiment, the LHC is 27 kilometres in circumference and it has two beams of protons going around it, one in each direction. And the beams, when they cross, are about the diameter of human hair, but they carry the energy of an aircraft carrier travelling at 30 miles an hour. Right? So they, and, and what I decided to do with a few friends of mine was put detectors three millimetres away from them. Right. Right. <laughs> to, uh, and, and it's... Uh, it's actually to detect collisions where the protons, they collide but just glance off each other and then they go all the way. So they almost don't come out of the beam, really. They, they, they almost don't collide, but they, they exchange a tiny bit of energy, but they stay intact. And that those protons actually come out of the beams 420 metres away from the point at which they crossed. Wow. So it's almost half a kilometre away. And at that point, you can grab them between about three and seven millimetres away from the beams. And it's quite nice because one way of producing particles like Higgs particles, which is one of the things we want to search for, is to have these protons just lose a bit of energy, glance off, off each other, stay intact. You, you produce a Higgs in the central detector, so an atlas or CMS that you see decay. But you measure its mass from detecting how much energy the protons lost because they just lose all the energy they lose in their little glancing collision goes into making the Higgs. So it's called central exclusive production. And so I worked on that for many years, which is a joint project. I ran that project for a, l- a long time. And wow. actually CMS are going ahead with it probably more forcefully than Atlas now. So, so actually <laughs> my experiment, the, the, the project I ran is going to be realised on a different experiment to the one that I'm on probably. You mentioned earlier about gravity being a force that particle physicists don't care about, but then you alluded that maybe mm. it is more important to particle physicists than originally thought. So could you expand on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, so gravity is... Uh, sort of a million, 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 a bit more than that, actually, times weaker than the other three forces. So and so that's one of the big questions in physics, actually. Why? Because you know, on that scale, the other three forces are about as strong as each other, uh, and just gravity is radically different. So, I mean, the, the, the standard textbook view would be that gravity is in some sense not really a force. It's, a, it's, it's there because space and time are curved by massive objects, so it's, it's, in a way, it's a fictitious force. It's, a good analogy is that the, the, the Earth's surface is curved. So if you set off with your friend and stand at the equator and start walking parallel to each other, then you'll bump into each other at the North Pole. So because parallel means going up a line of longitude. So you'll walk up there and you'll bump into them. So if you didn't know that the Earth's surface was curved, then you would say there was a force acting between you that was pulling you together, obviously, because you were walking parallel and you bumped into each other. So you got closer together. <laughs> so you'd, you would assume there's a force. No, there isn't. It's because the surface of the Earth is curved. So that's the Einstein's explanation for gravity, because space-time is curved by things like... curved by everything that has mass, actually, or energy, but you don't see it very much unless you've got a sun or a planet there, and then you feel that force. So that, But that's not satisfactory for, for many reasons. That sets it aside from the other three forces. Well, there are good reasons to think that that shouldn't be the final description of it. I mean, one of the best ones, uh, a friend of mine said, actually, he was an astrophysicist, said, well, look, if you think of a star that collapses, 
Right? Why, why would you want this theory of gravity? Well, as big, massive stars, they, they supernova happens and they explode, and then you get left with a black hole. So a star can collapse to something that's essentially a point-like thing, right? a singularity, a black hole. So there's a, there's a, in nature, there's a transition between a big thing and something which is quantum-sized, but is obviously something to do with gravity because it's a black hole, right? So, so you, why do you want a quantum theory of gravity? Because you would want some continuous description of the collapse of a star, and that's kind of a good, a good thing because Einstein's theory breaks down in a black hole. I mean, literally, that, that word singularity is a mathematical term, really. It means that all your, your theory just predicts complete nonsense. It's unable to predict anything when you've got something that's so small and so dense that it's atomic size but the mass of a sun. Are you, the, Einstein's theory does not work, but some theories should. And it should be something that's able to deal with particles and things like that. So, so you might think that there should be a quantum theory of gravity. Right, so, having said that preamble, so... The, so one, thi- one idea, one th- speculative idea for why gravity is so weak is that there are extra dimensions in the universe. So literally, th- there are four dimensions in our universe at the moment, three space and one of time. Well, you can have more, um, and you can have them... It, we could either be on a little sheet, a four-dimensional sheet, floating around in a bigger multi-dimensional universe, or there could be dimensions that are curled up. And actually, the, the, the radius... So, so the, the analogy here is that if you look at a hose pipe and a long way away at the bottom of your garden, then from, from way up uh, the garden in your house, it looks like a line. So it looks like a, a two-dimensional thing. But if you get close to it, you see that it's not. It's curved into another dimension. It's a three-dimensional thing. It's a pipe. Mm. So, so you, can, you can build theories like that where there are curled-up extra dimensions. And one of the ideas is that the reason gravity looks weak to us is because it has to bother with all the extra dimensions. So uniquely amongst the forces, it's the one that has to travel through ten dimensions rather than four. And so it just gets diluted, basically. So that all sounds like science fiction, but if it's true, we can detect the signatures of extra dimensions if they're big enough and set up right at LHC. It's one of the things people look for at LHC, is extra dimensions in the universe. Wow. Uh, My head's just blown right now. (laughs) (laughs) I should hurry up, actually, because I've got, I've got yeah. this stuff. In well, <clears throat> I mean, I was going to ask you all about the connections between astrophysics mm. and particle physics, but I guess we've kind of covered that. There, there's some there. I mean, the connection, my connection, personally, is that I started doing a, a, an astrophysics degree at Manchester uh, and then went into theoretical physics. But then my first year, my PhD, was designing detectors to detect neutrinos from supernova. So, so I kind of have always flitted between the two, actually. They're very similar. So astroparticle physics, I suppose, is a is a field that I've always wandered in and out of. Yeah. And just before we finish, can I just ask you about your interest in astronomy and looking at the stars, moving away a little bit from astrophysics mm. because astronomy and astrophysics are kind of almost two separate things. You've yeah. got you know, astronomy where you look at the stars and then astrophysics where you explain them. Mm. So did, were you always interested in, in amateur astronomy or was that something that came later in life when you started studying physics? No, no always interested. From as far back as I can remember, I was interested in both space flight, actually, space exploration, planetary science and astronomy. That was when I was four. That's what I was into. <laughs> so, so that's why I did astrophysics at university to, to start with. So, so it's always, just for some reason, it's always been an interest. Well, thank you very much. I think we're out of time. Uh, would love for you to come and talk to us for longer in Manchester if you ever have the time. Yeah, well, I'd love to. I mean, when I finally get back to Manchester <laughs> and actually do some lectures or something, then, then yeah. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Jen. 
And if you enjoyed that and want to see photos of Jen swooning over Professor Brian Cox... I was not swooning. You were very keen to do that interview, though. Well, there's plenty of photos the listeners can judge for themselves. (laughs) We'll link to them in the show notes. So now we get on to the part of the show where we talk about all the little bits that we couldn't fit in anywhere else. And one of the reasons for Stargazing Live to be at the beginning of January was that there was a partial solar eclipse on the 4th of January, which was visible from much of Europe and I think parts of Africa and Asia as well. So there's a lot of good photos from that. Um, Evan, do you want to talk about some first? Uh, Yes, there's a lot of good photos, a lot of good optical photos. But um, one thing that uh, you don't usually see, which I've managed to come across, are uh, radio images of the eclipse. Um, An astronomer by the name of Nico Lavinen, who I had the pleasure of meeting last year, um, he works at the Metsahovi Telescope in Finland. And he's uh, constructed a series of images of the eclipse, but uh, radio images. And he's made a nice animation of that. Radio images. I never really think of the sun as a radio emitter. Yes, the sun emits at all wavelengths, uh, most prominently in the optical. That's why we can see in the optical. But at radio uh, wavelengths, uh, simply because it's so close, it's also extremely bright in the radio. There's also been a lot of good optical photos of the solar eclipse. Uh, One amazing one, which I hope everyone has seen already, but if you haven't... Do it. You have to go and check this one out. This is a picture of the sun being eclipsed while the ISS, the International Space Station, is passing over it. And it was taken by a guy called Thierry Legault. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his name. Legault. Legault. Um, it was astronomy picture of the day on 5th of January. And it was, it's just incredible. I can't believe. I mean, I think how- this guy is an accomplished uh, astrophotographer. So he's had to work out where he needs to be to take this photo. And in fact, he had one second in which to take it when the ISS passed the face of the sun. The NASA Goddard Space Flight Center Flickr group has also conveniently collected together some good eclipse photos so we don't have to. Um, So we'll link to that as well. And also something that you don't see very often is that they've got a movie of the eclipse from space. So this is the view from the Hinode satellite, which is out there observing the sun, but has taken photos of the eclipse as the eclipse happened as well and they've put together a little movie of that and that's really cool. You never really think of eclipses from space. Something that's going on at the moment as we record is the 217th meeting of the American Astronomical Society and these are meetings that happen I think twice a year and you always get loads of press releases, lots of exciting results being presented at these meetings and we're going to have a full roundup in the next show but we thought we'd give you some tidbits to start off with. Uh, firstly, is uh, there's a new image of uh, Henny's Vorwerp, and I'd like to apologise to all my Dutch <laughs> friends for probably mispronouncing that. I believe it means object or thingy, um, which we discussed previously in May 2008 with Chris Lintosh. Um, Henny's Vorwerp was found by somebody called Henny, and it's a strange-looking green object found uh, in Galaxy Zoo. Another exciting d- discovery came out of the AAS meeting in Seattle was the detection of the first rocky exoplanet. This was discovered by NASA's Kepler satellite. So this is the smallest planet to date that has been found outside our solar system. It's about 1.4 times the mass of the Earth, but it's very close to its host star. In fact, it's too close to be able to support life. The last bit of breaking news we had from the meeting was that a gamma-ray detector in space called Fermi has actually managed to detect antimatter coming out of lightning storms on the Earth. So it was a direct detection of antimatter naturally produced by Earth's storms. Another exciting piece of news is the first scientific results from Planck were released at a press briefing in Paris on January the 11th. 
These results are really interesting, although they don't focus on the cosmological side of Planck, i.e. looking at the afterglow of the Big Bang, the cosmic microwave background. They actually discuss all the other light that we can see, all the light from our own galaxy, all them extra external galaxies that are actually causing us to not be able to see the cosmic microwave background. So this is basically the cosmologist's rubbish. Yes. And they're is, turning it into science. Yes, this yeah. is all the stuff that the cosmologists just don't care about. They just want it removed. But to actually remove it, you need to understand it. One of the things that was released, one of the results that was released, was the early release compact source catalogue. And this is a list of approximately 15,000 sources, ranging from cold, dense sites of star formation within our own galaxy, to clusters of galaxies, which are among the largest structures that we can see in the universe. Also, something more close to my heart, Planck data has been used to try and enable us to understand the anomalous microwave emission, which is just another foreground component of our galaxy, but it's something that's not completely understood. Okay, and if you're interested in Planck, we've covered it quite a bit on the show. Um, The launch, which was on the 14th of May 2009, is in the May Extra 2009. And Mark also interviewed the Planck project scientist, Dr Jan Tauber, in the July 2010 Extra edition. Also, if you want to know more about anomalous microwave emission, um, the Jughead interviewed Professor Rod Davis in September 2009. And now, answering your astronomical questions, a man who is no Planck, a very clever guy, Dr Tim O'Brien. So we had a number of questions this month that uh, arose out of the Stargazing Live programme that came through on from various sources like Twitter and so on. We had a number of questions about planets, um, I think based on the first programme in Stargazing Live, which concentrated on planets. And in particular, one of the popular questions was relating to gas giant planets like Jupiter and asking, you know, where's the surface? How do we define the, the edge of Jupiter if it's made of gas? Now, of course, you know, it's a good question because because uh, the atmosphere is, is basically gas. It's quite extended. And in fact, when you look up what, uh, what the size of Jupiter is, for example, the sort of diameter of Jupiter, the published values actually define the edge of the planet as when the pressure in the atmosphere of Jupiter or one of the other giant planets is one bar, which is approximately equal to um, sort of the atmospheric pressure of the Earth on the Earth at sea level. So obviously the higher up you go in the atmosphere, the lower the atmospheric pressure. You've got less weight of atmosphere pressing down on you. Uh, and the same would be true in a, in a planet like, like Jupiter. Um, now it turns out it doesn't actually make a huge amount of difference exactly what you, you use there in the sense that the change between, say, defining the edge of Jupiter as being one bar to, to maybe a thousand times less in the lower higher up in the atmosphere only changes the the size by about a hundred kilometers compared to the sort of diameter of Jupiter of you know getting on for one hundred and fifty thousand kilometers or so so that 's basically the answer is it um, you do have to make a call on what you call the edge of a, of a gas planet um, and that 's how it 's defined in terms of the atmospheric pressure at that point. There were also quite a few questions relating to Pluto and people were getting a, you know, obviously some people still out there are a little bit upset about the fact that Pluto is not defined as a planet anymore and we've redefined it as a dwarf planet. Um, you should listen back to one of the Jodcasts um, back from 2006 when that decision was made. We've actually got a good uh, episode there on that whole story of the, the decision to reclassify Pluto. And I think the only thing I would say about it at this stage is that it always used to... Uh, 
it made me think that actually it was unfortunate for our moon in the sense that our moon is actually bigger than Pluto. It's actually five times, weighs five times more than Pluto. And our moon doesn't get to be called a planet. So how come Pluto gets to be called one? And really that's just to do with chance in the sense that the moon is a, is actually a, a satellite of the Earth. So basically Pluto is very small, much less massive, very different from all, from the eight, uh, classic planets that we know. Uh, that we now use. Um, Hazza McCoy on Twitter uh, asked a question about gas giants again. Why are gas giants bigger with stronger gravity yet have no density when the smaller planets are much, much smaller? Um, well, it's true that the gas giants are bigger and they're more massive and therefore the gravity's uh, going to be stronger. They don't have no density though and, and the small planets like the Earth are not much, much denser. Um, in fact, the uh, the average density of... Um, the Earth, for example, is about five and a half grams per cubic centimeter. So if you just took a, you know, a little volume of space that was one centimeter by one centimeter by one centimeter of a typical uh, material from the Earth, that would weigh uh, 5.5 grams. For Jupiter, it would weigh 1.3 grams. So it's only four times less dense, um, than the Earth. And actually that's about the same as what it is for the Sun. And the reason that the dense, the average density of the Sun and Jupiter, for example, is less than that of the Earth, uh, is because it's, they're made of different stuff. So basically, Jupiter and the Sun um, are mostly hydrogen and helium. So in terms of by the weight of material, the Sun and, and the gas giant planets are basically they're about seventy four percent hydrogen and about twenty four percent helium. And only, and the remaining two percent is all is all the other elements. So all the elements, like you know, like iron and carbon and oxygen and so on. So completely dominated by hydrogen and helium, um, the sun and and the gas giants. Whereas if you look at Earth, um, it's actually almost half of the Earth's mass is made up of oxygen, a quarter or so of, of it is made up of silicon, and then you start to get you know eight percent aluminium, five percent iron, and so on. And hydrogen is only 0.14 percent of the mass of the Earth. And basically that's just to do with how these planets formed and where they formed in the solar system in terms of the distance from the sun and what materials were, were available in a solid form and which could condense to, to make the planets. So um, a lot of people were asking why the gas giants formed further away than the rocky planets and how can you have gas giants when it's so far away from the sun so it's too cold for gas and so on. Well... The usual assumption, the, the sort of usual assumption about how planets form is they form by um, bits of stuff basically sticking together within a disk at the centre of which the sun forms. So you've got basically this cold, this cloud of gas and dust that collapses in on itself under its own weight. And in the middle of that cloud, the sun forms. And out in the disk, the planets form by uh, stuff sticking together initially to make larger and larger lumps of material um, gradually. And then if those lumps get big enough, the, the, the gravity is actually strong enough to attract in more material. And you grow these things called planetismals, so they're sort of like baby planets. Um, now, it turns out that the material that's available to you is going to depend on what's, for example, condensed into a solid form. And that depends how far away you are from the sun. And that's why you get different compositions of planets at different distances. So the gas giants are made of different stuff than the, than the sort of rocky planets. We think, um, Jupiter, for example, has probably does have a solid core deep inside it. Um, but it's managed to, to, gather to, to, to attract all this huge, uh, extensive, massive, gaseous atmosphere um, around it. 
So, so that's basically the story. Of course, we only ever had one example of um, planetary system to look at, which was the solar system, until somewhat over 10 years ago, 15 years ago or so now, when we started to find lots of other planets around other stars. And then we found actually that, that gas giant planets around other stars, you could actually find them quite close to the stars, much, much closer than Mercury is to our own sun. Uh, we find these things called hot Jupiters. Now, we think that those planets probably formed at large distances again, but they've migrated inwards. They've basically moved inwards close to the sun by either interactions with other planets, so that sort of swings them in, if you like, by the by the gravitational pull and in, uh, as they pass close by to other planets in those planetary systems, or maybe by interactions within the sort of forming disk, you know, the disk that all those planets formed out of. So it's a, you know, it's a really live topic is, is, is asking the question of how planets form and, and it's been stimulated by finding all these planets around other stars. Okay, we had a question from uh, Mark Cooper who emailed in to ask how we created images how we create images from the signals we receive from a radio telescope. And he'd seen the Stargazing Live program and seen the bit where I was showing um, Dara how we, uh, talking about how we, the radio telescope, like the Lovell telescope works, and then talking about emailing. Now, one thing Mark mentions in his, in his, in his question is, um, he thinks that maybe, um, you could, you could perhaps point your, point your telescope in one direction and gather a signal from that direction and then move your telescope a little bit and gather the signal from that direction and perhaps that's how we make an image. Well, you can do that. You, you know, a big radio telescope like the Lovell telescope, we point it in one direction and we, we measure the strength of the radio signal from that direction in the sky. And you could sort of do a thing like a, like a raster scan, basically, um, where you sort of move the telescope along a bit, then measure the brightness in that direction, move it along a bit more, measure the brightness again, and perhaps build up row after row after row to build up an image. That's how you might do it with a, with a single radio telescope. Basically picks up radio waves coming from one direction. But what we do with something like eMerlin, when we have arrays of, of radio telescopes, we have several radio telescopes spread across large distances, is, is rather different. Um, and the way to think about it, if you think about eMerlin, it has seven radio telescopes. There's two here at Jodrell, five spread across the, the country between here and Cambridge, spread across a, a diameter of about 217 kilometres. Now, they're like, you've got to imagine that that's like a giant telescope 217 kilometres across of which we've only got seven bits. So if you can imagine seven points on the surface of this sort of virtual dish that's 217 kilometers across, uh, they would reflect radio waves up to a, up to a focus that you, you know, you'd imagine would be on this giant tower we'd build in Birmingham or something with the, with the focus at the top of it, um, in the middle of this virtual dish. Now we don't do that. We actually collect the signals at each point, at each of these telescopes, and then we bring them back to Jodrell Bank where we combine them together. So we use a machine called a correlator. It's basically a supercomputer that combines these signals. Now what it does is it combines the signals in pairs. So we take um, the signal as received from each pair of telescopes. And of course, there's quite a few different pairs that you can make up from seven individual telescopes. But each of those points are like two points on the surface of this sort of virtual telescope that we'd like to have built. There was this huge 217 kilometer sized one. Um, each pair of points gives us a particular bit of information about the distribution of light or radio waves on the sky. The farther apart the two points are, so the farther apart the two telescopes are, um, the finer detail um, we're able to see. 
And the angle of those two points, those two telescopes on the ground, if you like, also gives us information about the structure of the image. So by combining all those different pairs of telescopes together, we start to build up an image. We're very limited in the quality of that image by the fact that we've only got seven telescopes. We'd love to have many more, but obviously it would cost more money. So one of the things that we do is to then, rather than just sort of make an instantaneous image, just take a snapshot of the sky, we actually watch um, the object we're interested in as it rises in the east and moves right the way across the sky and sets in the west. And that fills in some of the gaps. That's the thing called Earth rotation aperture synthesis. It fills in some of the gaps. It basically changes the apparent spacing of the, each of these pairs of points, these pairs of telescopes, because, you know, if you, as the object's rising in the east, you're looking sort of side-on at the array of telescopes on the ground, so they, they appear to be uh, spaced differently than they are when the object's high in the sky or when it's setting in the west. And it changes the apparent angles as well. And that gives us more information on the distribution of brightness. In other words, it lets us create the image. So that's basically how we do it. Uh, another question here from uh, Matthew Sykes, who emailed in to ask about um, sounds from radio astronomy. So uh, in Stargazing Live, we played the sound of a of a pulsar. Um, that's basically a flashing object, so the radio signals flashing and sort of getting stronger and fainter and stronger, brighter and fainter and brighter and fainter. Um, what we can do is just turn that into a sound by taking the strength of the radio signal, basically would correspond to volume, uh, and that would give us the sort of thud, 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 thud sound, or in the case of the crab pulsar that we played, you get a thud, thud, thud that happens 30 times a second, so more like a sort of sort of noise. Probably the good thing to do is to look back, at, uh, listen back to one of the Jodcasts that we did a while back now, back in 2008 in August, we did a whole interview about sounds from space, and I'll put the links to these um, Jodcasts on, on the website. A uh, question from Dale Sanderson uh, asks about how far away the objects are that we can see in the sky. And he basically says only a handful of objects visible to the unaided eye, in other words, without binoculars or a telescope, um, are located outside of our own galaxy. So he mentions the Andromeda galaxy, which is the nearby large spiral galaxy about two and a half million light years away. There's the Magellanic clouds, which are two nearby dwarf galaxies visible from the southern hemisphere. But he's basically saying that he thinks um, the next closest spiral arms of, uh, in our Milky Way are over 5,000 light years away in our Milky Way, and that's true. Um, and therefore, he's asking, is it accurate to say that just about every object visible to the naked eye without, you know, without using a binoculars or a telescope is actually located not just within our Milky Way, but actually within the very local arm of our Milky Way that's sometimes called the local spur or the Orion spur. Well, it's actually true that many of the the individual brightest stars are indeed closer than 5,000 light years. Um, and there's a very nice schematic of the Milky Way that was produced from observations done with the Spitzer telescope that shows you sort of the approximate scales and distances to spiral arms. Turns out that the one of the brightest stars in the sky, actually Deneb, which is in the Summer Triangle, is actually one of the more distant of these. It's about 3,000 light years away. But certainly the vast majority of the individually bright stars that you can see if you go out at night and look up at the sky are, are rather closer than this. But it's also true to say that you'll see, you do see starlight from many stars that are farther away than this. And basically the glow of the Milky Way, so you see the sort of arching band of the Milky Way across the sky, uh, 
that light is coming from stars that are much farther away than that. You can certainly see the bulge of the of the Milky Way with the naked eye when you look towards the centre of the Milky Way in Sagittarius, and that's basically stars that are maybe 20,000 light years away or more. So although you might not be able to particularly resolve them as individual objects, you are seeing the light from objects that are much farther than 5,000 light years away within our galaxy. And there are specific objects like Eta Carina is a highly evolved star with its sort of circumstellar nebula. That's 9,000 light years away and that's visible. Um, Omega Centauri is a globular cluster of stars 16,000 light years away, which is also visible. And in the Northern Hemisphere, there's another globular cluster called M13, which is just about visible to the naked eye in a dark sky, and that's 25,000 light years away. So they're, you know, they're groups of maybe a million stars, um, but they are, they are visible just about to the naked eye. And in fact, there was a gamma ray burst, an exploding star at very large distances um, in the universe in 2008. Uh, the light from it basically takes about 8 billion years to get to us. And when that exploded, it was actually just about visible to the naked eye, even at that distance where the light's taken 8 billion years to reach us, because it's such an intrinsically bright object. But it was only visible to the naked eye for about 30 seconds. <laughs> so you'd have to have been pretty lucky to have spotted that flash of that object. Um, but it's certainly possible to see some very distant objects uh, with the naked eye without the aid of a telescope or binoculars. Okay, last question is from uh, Johnny, who emailed in to ask about a very bright star rising low down in the southern horizon before dawn, which he correctly points out is Venus. It's actually not a star at all, it's a planet. Um, but he was asking about a nearby object, a sort of companion star, which was nearby, which was rather dimmer, and he wanted to know what it was. I was having a look at the, uh, what was there when at the time when, when Johnny wrote in, which was actually before Christmas, and it wasn't immediately obvious to me which uh, star it could have been. It might have been Spica, which was near to Venus at that time, um, or it might even have been Saturn, which was also... Um, uh, rising around the same time, but it doesn't quite fit what, what Johnny saw. So what I would suggest is uh, downloading some software like Stellarium, for example, which is free, um, which we mention quite often on the Jodcast, and that will tell you what's up in the sky at any time from any location on the planet, and that will help answer any of those questions. Or if you've got a mobile phone, one of the new smartphones, um, you might download some one of these apps like Google Sky Maps, for example, which uh, which will show you the sky in any direction at the time you're looking at. And that might also be helpful in identifying objects. Thanks for that, Tim. And that brings us to almost the end of the show. We just have to round up your feedback first. So on the email front, we've had a few emails. Randy Green from Bothell, Washington in the USA emailed us to tell us that the world isn't going to end in 2012. It's going to end in February 2011 when there's no intro or outro. So thanks for your comment, Randy. That's really sweet, but I'm pretty sure the world will continue. We just have have to watch this space. Yeah. We also had an email from Roger Malarkey from Kildare in Ireland, who has been burning the podcast to CD, which is really nice to know that people still listen to it on CD out there because we do try to keep these shows to under 76 minutes so you can get all of one show onto a CD. Finally, we had an email from Andrew Walrand who was worried that people will be missing out on the latest show because the front page isn't updating for him. So it was showing the October edition when there was a November and a December as well. And he had to go to the archive to find those. This is a problem we know about. It's something to do with the cash system, which I don't really understand. But Stuart has tried his hardest to make sure that browsers don't retain an old version and update it. Um, You can get around it by doing a hard reload of your browser. Otherwise, if you 
subscribe to the RSS feed, then you won't have this problem. Or just check out the archive. Yes, or do what Andrew did and go to the archive. On the forum this month, there's been so many comments it's been hard to keep up with. Um, but lots of co- positive comments. Uh, please keep it up. Thanks to all the birthday messages on Twitter. Thank you also to everyone who has tweeted or retweeted about the show, especially during the Stargazing Live shows. And on Facebook, uh, Kimberly Goldstein, or Goldstein, uh, says that she had listened to the December episode and describes it as really wonderful. These are the kind of comments we like. We also got a message on Facebook from Becky Rag Sykes, who is uh, an archaeologist, but very keen on astronomy. Thank you for the message, Becky, and we hope to see you at Jod Pub sometime in the future. Also, Jen likes dinosaurs. I do like dinosaurs. Little plastic dinosaurs. And real dinosaurs. But you don't have any of those in your office. I'm pretty sure I don't anyway. (laughs) So if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. Via Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. That's a lot of ways to get in touch. That really is. And that brings us to the end of the show. So all that's left to say is a huge, massive, unbelievably big thank you to Professor Brian Cox, Dara Breen, and Mark Thompson for being interviewed and for giving up half of their lunch hour to talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> Almost the only free time they had in the day I think, yeah. in between their scripting and their rehearsals a massive thank you also to the bbc stargazing live crew for actually allowing us to be on site also thank you to tim for being the go-between between us and the people at jodrell the editors for this episode were adam avison jen gupta Stuart lowe and tim o'brien that's all for this episode so until next time jod on bye bye, bye. bye.